Greetings, friends, and welcome to the first podcast of the New Testament and Preaching June Intensive. In the next few minutes, I intend to do the following. First, I will review some of our course coordinates, including our course epigrams and the content we covered back in January. This will help us to head into our final sprint with a sharper sense of purpose. Second, I will overview our week-long intensive, including the main assignments and the breakdown of individual sessions. This will give you some idea of how to plan and how to move through the time that remains. Lastly, I will give a basic overview of where Paul's writings sit in the canon of the New Testament and provide some historical information about them. So, course coordinates, overview of the intensive, and bird's eye of Paul's writings. These three things will round out our first orienting podcast. First, then, I remind you that our syllabus begins with three course epigrams. I will read them. The first one is from Jennifer Brooks' book, Good News Preaching. She writes, Preaching is above all the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The second epigram, also from Brooks, Starting with the text, the preacher identifies the action of God that is not only historical witness, but that speaks of present action and expectant hope. The last epigram is from Brian Blunt's book, Invasion of the Dead. He writes, In the cosmic conflict between the Almighty and Creator God and the forces of satanic sin and hellish death, resurrection is the weapon. To win, God must detonate a force as ferocious for life as God's enemies are vicious for death. End quote. These three quotes tee up a few of the governing ideas of our class. Good news. I am trying to prepare you to preach good news from the texts of the New Testament, which is, as you'll recall, something different from exhorting or urging or advising. Our job as preachers isn't to tell folks what they ought to do, but rather to tell them what God has done and is doing. Good news centers on God's action. Finally, though, cosmic conflict. We are imagining that God's work of creating new life or resurrecting takes place within a situation of massive opposition and struggle. The story we tell as Christians is not one of God offering salvation to individuals, but rather of God engaging in an act of exorcism, driving out the forces of satanic sin and hellish death from a world they have thoroughly possessed. We began back in January with the book of Revelation. Even though the New Testament canon situates it at the very back of the book, right next to the outside cover, Revelation helped to defamiliarize the New Testament. It is a strange and unfamiliar book, and reading other pieces of the New Testament alongside it enable us to see them more strangely and unfamiliarly, too. Revelation also introduces the theme of cosmic conflict in a big way. It narrates how a red dragon tries to devour a woman and her child, but Michael and the angels fight against the dragon and throw it down to the earth. 
I emphasized back in January that the whole concept of resurrection, of God raising the dead, is an apocalyptic Jewish concept. It happens in the book of Daniel at the very end of time. So, when God raised Jesus from the dead, the earliest Christians fully expected that the rest of the resurrection, what we call the general resurrection, would happen imminently, since the end of the world had come. We read a number of stories from the Gospels in light of Revelation, pairing, for example, the story of Epiphany with the story of the woman clothed with the sun in Revelation chapter 12, or the story of the Gerasene demoniac with Satan being thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20. What we will do in the week-long June intensive will be somewhat similar. We will continue to read the rest of the New Testament with the book of Revelation in hand as a kind of decoder ring. It will help us to see the apocalyptic character of these other writings, and especially, as we will see, the letters of the Apostle Paul. Here's what we will do beginning on June 8th. On Monday, we will regroup. According to the schedule that Andy Thompson distributed, we will spend one hour together in synchronous conversation. During this time, we will debrief the readings and the content of this and the following podcast lecture. In preparation for that session, I ask that you prepare three questions. One on the chapter by J. Christian Becker, one on the book of Romans, and one on Paul's writings overall. I ask that you submit these to me ahead of the first June intensive session. Please send me those questions by email. They can be in the form of a sentence each or bullet points, however you prefer, but has to be three questions. These will then form the basis of our conversation together. On Tuesday, we will have a joint exegesis conversation with me and David Stark. So on that day, there will be no synchronous group session or at most a short synchronous session. On Wednesday, we will resume our engagement with the Apostle Paul. In preparation for class, I will release another podcast episode to be listened to on Tuesday night. In our time together in a synchronous session on Wednesday, we will talk about the content of that lecture as well as about the exegetical process, how to move from prayer and reading and note-taking toward crafting a sermon. On Thursday, we will conduct individual tutorial sessions. 10 or 15 minutes each with me, working on exegetical notes in preparation for preaching. There will be no synchronous class discussion. On Friday, in our synchronous session, we will debrief the week and the whole course, and we will talk about next steps in your practice of preparing sermon notes and preaching good news from New Testament texts. That is the play-by-play for each day of the week. In terms of the assignments, I've already mentioned the questions you are to submit on Monday. The other major assignment will be to turn in exegetical notes. Each day of the week, I will assign all of you a different sermon text drawn from the Pauline corpus. You will then turn those notes in to me by day's end uh, on that text. I will send further instructions about what those notes require, but for now, just know you will not preach in this final June intensive for the New Testament and preaching class. Instead, we will focus on the process ahead of preaching, especially on wrestling with the texts and discerning God's actions in them. All right, so that's two out of the three things I promised we would do. 
course coordinates, and overview of the June intensive. The last thing remaining is to present you with some basic information about Paul's writings and where they sit within the New Testament. You'll remember from our April class session together that I briefly commented on the pivotal role of Acts, the book of Acts, in the whole New Testament. First, there are four Gospels. Not accidentally, Matthew, the first Gospel, is also, in a certain way, the most Jewish. It begins, as you'll recall, with the genealogy, anchoring the events of Jesus' birth in the lineage of Israel. Matthew fitly segues from Hebrew Scripture, on one side, to the rest of the New Testament, on the other. In a somewhat comparable way, the book of Acts segues from the four Gospels to the rest of the New Testament following. It bridges between the time of the earthly Jesus and his circle of disciples and the time of the early church, when other personalities assume leadership after Jesus, men like Peter, James, and John, whom Paul calls the pillars of the church in Galatians 2.9, and then also, of course, the Apostle Paul himself. Acts gives us readers some biographical background for each of these figures, and it also helps us to envision them as playing on the same team. One might not think that their theologies complement one another quite so well unless Acts was there to, quote, set the template. It's also worth saying again that the role that Acts has in the New Testament canon, bridging between the Gospels on one side and then Paul and the pillars on the other, is not at all what it was intended to do. The author of Acts is the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. They were written as a two-part account of Jesus and the early church. So in a way, the use of Acts in the canon as a bridge runs contrary to its original intention. Similarly, Paul's writings are not laid out in the New Testament according to their historical order or their historical intention. Romans the first of the canonical letters and the longest letter from Paul, is not his earliest. In fact, most scholars agree that 1 Thessalonians is the oldest letter from Paul, and indeed the oldest document in the entire New Testament. 1 Thessalonians. The Gospels themselves date to the second or third generation of Christians living in the 70s or 80s of the first century. Paul's writings date to the 50s, only a couple decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, and hence at the tail end of the first generation of Christians. After all, Paul says that, that, quote, last of all, as to one untimely born, the risen Jesus, appeared to me also. I am the least of the apostles. That's from 1 Corinthians 15, 8. So, Paul's writings, even though they come after the Gospels in the New Testament, actually historically precede the Gospels by decades. Paul's letter to the Romans is also not his first, that is, 1 Thessalonians. That said, Romans makes a fitting introduction to the whole Paul collection. It is Paul's most comprehensive statement of the gospel message that he proclaimed, and in some ways it tempers some of Paul's more extravagant claims and hostile moments. It is cooler and non-polemical in a way that does not apply to, say, Galatians, or 1 Corinthians. Also, even as Paul's letters are presented out of historical order in the canon of the New Testament, there was also another consideration that complicates our understanding of his writings as the canon renders them, and that is this. 
not all of the letters that say they are written by Paul were probably historically authored by him. Most mainstream scholars believe that seven letters are authentic, meaning that Paul personally wrote them. These are Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and Philemon, the seven authentic letters. You'll notice the ones I didn't just list out. These fall into a couple groups. First, the so-called deuterocanonical letters. These are Colossians, Ephesians, and 2nd Thessalonians. Some scholars believe these were written by Paul, uh, but for reasons that we will talk about in another podcast lecture, I do not. Then there are the pastoral letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, which most scholars agree Paul did not write. The book of Hebrews does not claim to have been written by Paul, but it has often been associated with his collection. That is why it directly follows Philemon in the canonical form of the New Testament. So, there's a bit of a bird's eye of Paul's writings. According to scholars, 1 Thessalonians is his first letter that the canon preserves, and actually there are only seven in the canon written by him, with a number of other letters written in his name by disciples or followers. That said, our allegiance as Christians today is to the canon of the New Testament, and as I suggested, Romans makes for a fitting beginning to the Paul collection following it. You'll remember from our week together in January that I emphasized the importance of beginnings and endings, of individual gospels, of the book of Acts, and also now of the Pauline writings considered as a whole. In the next podcast, I will talk about some of the touch points of Paul's thought. In a way, uh, this lecture will cover a lot of the same ground as the reading by J. Christian Becker. And so I encourage you to complete that reading by the time you tune in to the next episode of the June Intensive for the Alternate Clergy Training uh, at Sewanee.